Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. First thing I want to do is apologize because I have a, a little bit of a cold. Don't know if it's a cold or if it's allergies, but all I know is that I'm congested and kind of coughing a little bit, so I'll try not to cough too much into the microphone and uh, kill your ears tonight. Um, tonight's, tonight's a really important night. Um, the topic that we're going to talk about is a really important topic. Um, the topic of, um, just broadly speaking, the topic of suffering, why does suffering exist? Uh, next week also is, if, if there was anything more important than what we're going to talk about tonight, it's what we're going to talk about next week, which is resurrection, right? Um, and in my mind, probably the most important night of the semester is going to be next Wednesday night. So um, if you are able to make it next Wednesday, please do try. Um, because these, I think, are the, the twin issues that, um, in, in my experience, teaching... Um, uh, Christian apologetics or Christian defenses, these are the two issues that um, are the largest issues that have to be dealt with when it comes to defending and commending the Christian faith. So uh, tonight we're going to talk about suffering. <clears throat> and um, every semester, I think I mentioned this um, several weeks ago, but um, one of my favorite assignments that I give on an annual basis, it's a, it's a favorite of mine. I don't know if it's a favorite of my students or not, but um, one of my favorite assignments is that they have to um, basically conduct a conversation. I mean, imagine being assigned the task of having a conversation with someone. Uh, but they have to have a conversation with someone who is not a believer. Um, it could be someone who is a post-Christian. They have, for whatever reason, abandoned faith. It could be a person who is a pre-Christian, they don't believe, they're agnostic, or it could be a person who is a believer in another faith altogether. Um, we kind of keep it wide open. Um, but of those people, one of the questions that they have to ask in the context of that assignment is, just tell me, um, why don't you believe in God? You know, for those people who make the statement, I'm an atheist, or I'm an agnostic, or, you know, I, I'm an apotheist, I don't, I just don't think a lot about God. Tell me the reason why. What is, what would you say is the number one reason why you don't believe in God? And there's a lot of different reasons that people will throw out there. Um, some, in my opinion, better than others, but you know, they'll throw a lot of reasons out there. Some people will say, you know, uh, look at all the harm that the church has done in the past. Some people, it'll be a, a deeply personal issue that the church has harmed me or that Christians have harmed me, or I've seen, I've experienced hypocritical Christians in my life. So we get that a lot. We get, you know, I get a lot of the sort of uh, the, the personal offense that I haven't seen a real dramatic change in the Christians in my life. So why should I be a believer in their God? So we see a lot of that sort of thing. We see some sort of intellectual answers that are given to that answer or to that question. But the number one reason um, in my five or six years in teaching the class, the number one reason that people give for why they've either abandoned faith or why they aren't a person of faith currently is because of suffering. Um, sometimes the suffering is personal. Uh, you know, when, when I was in high school, my parents got a divorce uh, and I never was able to get over it. 
I was never able to forgive God for it. And so I, I've not been right with God ever since. And I've kind of just felt like God doesn't care and God isn't there. So, so sometimes it's deeply personal. Dad died of cancer when I was in grade school. Why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God do something about that? I prayed and I prayed and prayed and nothing happened. Sometimes it's not so personal. Sometimes it's more global. I can't believe in God because um, look at all of the evil that exists upon this, this planet. Or, or, you know, thousands, millions of people die for senseless reasons every day. Starvation, uh, thirst, disease. And so how could I believe in, in a good and loving God knowing that that sort of reality exists in this world? And, and I've got to say, this, this is a, this is a serious uh, a serious dilemma for a lot of people. Um, and it's probably a serious dilemma for a lot of people in this room, too. I know it's been an issue for me in my life at various times. I think that this is, this is um, a, a normal experience to, to deal with suffering, to deal with pain, to deal with evil, and to ask the natural, very human question, where is God in the midst of that? Um, now, on your, on your sheet, <clears throat> in, front of, in front of you, Hopefully you picked one up. Um, I've, I've chosen to label this not the problem of suffering. I've chosen to relabel this as the mystery of suffering. And I stole that from uh, one of my favorite authors on the subject, um, a philosopher out in Boston named Peter Kreeft. And, um, or Kreft, I always forget how it's pronounced. Um, but he calls suffering a mystery and not a problem. Because a problem is, here's a problem. How do we land a man upon the moon. That's a problem. A problem to be solved. There is an objective in mind. There are certain obstacles in our way keeping us from the objective. And so if we work hard enough, if we struggle enough, if we set our minds to it enough, we'll figure out the solution to this problem. Suffering is not a problem in that regard. Suffering isn't a problem to be solved. And the reason why is because we're a part of it. Suffering is, is a, we are in the midst of this thing that we call suffering. Uh, what he compared, he says, uh, a problem is how do we get to the moon? A mystery is marriage. Those of you who are married in here, wouldn't you agree with that? That there's something mysterious about marriage? There's something mysterious about the marriage relationship? Marriage isn't a problem to be solved. Your wife isn't a problem to be solved. Your husband isn't a problem to be solved. But your relationship is a mystery. A mystery to be embodied. A mystery to be experienced. A mystery to navigate yourself through. And suffering is sort of like that. Because we experience suffering in such a deeply personal way. I think we, we've got to avoid thinking of it as some sort of mathematical equation, that if we just set our minds to it enough, we can figure out this problem. So I wanted to lay that groundwork at the beginning because I don't want to be misunderstood at the end. Because I'm going to give you some fairly heady responses um, to, this, to this dilemma, to this issue, to this mystery. But I don't want to be misunderstood as if I'm giving like an answer, a final answer to all the suffering and pain that exists in our lives and in our world. Is that, are you with me? Does that make sense so far? Okay. So um, if you skip down, um, there's a couple quotes there. Um, one is from Peter Kreft, kind of highlighting this issue of 
a mystery versus a problem. You can read that. Um, but the problem of suffering can be categorized in two different ways. That's the little chart there in the middle of the page. There is, on one side of the equation, there is the intellectual problem. The intellectual problem of suffering. <clears throat> but on the other side, there is the emotional problem of suffering. So suffering is an emotional issue and also an intellectual issue. Now, which one do you think is more powerfully experienced in our lives and in the lives of people you know? Emotional, right? So suffering is primarily an emotional issue. It's primarily an emotional issue. It strikes us at our core, at our emotional core. But what I've experienced, and maybe you've experienced this too, the emotional experience of suffering will oftentimes give birth to intellectual problems because of suffering. So I've experienced suffering, which makes me feel a sort of way, which makes me feel something. And this emotion then gives birth to some various, very serious intellectual dilemmas when it comes to God. And, and what I've discovered is a person who has rejected God because of suffering, I could answer some of their intellectual questions, some of their theological questions. And without fail, if you answer those theological questions, you'll discover there's still this emotional scarring underneath. There's still this emotional core that has to be dealt with. This is not an intellectual exercise. At its core, it's emotional. But I want to, again, I want to handle the intellectual before we get to the emotional tonight, okay? And maybe that's revealing something about my own personality, but, but I, I want to handle some of the intellectual dilemmas that come with suffering first. Now, there's some unsatisfactory solutions to the problem of suffering and evil or to the mystery of, of evil and suffering. And what I want you to understand is that this isn't just our issue. This isn't just a Christian issue. Um, this series is about worldview, and, you know, if you remember going back to the very beginning of the series, a, a worldview is a set of presuppositions that we hold about the world. It's not necessarily a religion, although a religion is a part of a worldview, certainly. But a worldview is a set of assumptions that you hold about the world. And every single person has a worldview. Every single person has these assumptions or their presuppositions that they live by every day. And it doesn't matter what your worldview is, though. Everybody has to deal with the fundamental problem of brokenness. Things ain't right. Amen? Things just aren't right. And it doesn't matter. You could be a Christian, a non-Christian, an atheist, a Muslim. It does not matter. Every single person senses the reality that things in this world and things in my life are not the way that they should be. At the core of every worldview are these two questions. What's wrong and what's the solution? Every single person deals with this issue. So right out of the gate, I've got to correct the often misunderstanding that this is just a Christian problem or that this is just a believer's problem because it's not. Okay? So there are various unsatisfactory um, answers or solutions to this problem. And uh, I want to give you some of, some of these just really quickly, four of them. So how, how do we solve this problem? You know, I know we're treating it like a mathematical equation, but it's not. So how, how do people try to solve this problem? One solution is a denial that God exists. So some people will just throw up their hands and say, you know what, because suffering exists, because evil exists, I cannot believe in the existence of God. And there's many people that have 
arrived at that conclusion, and uh, we'll address that here in a moment, um, why that is maybe not the best solution. So a denial that God exists. Another option that is in front of us is a denial of God's power. A denial of God's power. So God might exist. He might. But maybe he's just not powerful enough to actually do anything ultimately about all of the evil, pain, and suffering in the world. And a lot of New Age-type religions, a lot of neo-paganism and these sorts of, of spiritualistic religions that exist in our world today, a lot of these are answering the problem of pain and suffering in precisely this way. There isn't a God of the universe who is in control of things. Maybe God is up there somewhere, but we don't really have access to him. We don't really know him. And so it's really left up to you and I in our spirituality. It's up to you and I to solve this basic problem. It's all on us. So it's a denial. It's basically saying God might exist. He might not exist, but that's not really our issue. God's not powerful enough to do anything about it. Number three is a denial of God's goodness. A denial of God's goodness. So, God, again, he might exist, he might not exist, but if he does exist, he's certainly not a good God. Um, God is not for us, God is against us. And, and again, that's, that's an attempt, it's an attempt to finally come to grips with or to solve this issue of suffering. Suffering exists, so if suffering exists, God must not be good. God must not love me. God must hate me, in fact. Does that sound like anybody you know? Like, I can't bring myself to actually deny that God exists, but if he does exist, he's just a big bully. He's just a jerk. Um, so either God's not powerful enough or he's not good enough. And then number four, um, and this is interesting. I'll go into this in a little bit more detail later on. Uh, but number four is a denial um, of evil. A denial of evil. Some people take um, a, an idealistic approach to this problem. That evil really isn't as bad as we think it is. That things are ultimately progressing and becoming better and, and we don't really have to worry about evil. Um, so these are all, I think, unsatisfactory solutions to the problem. Um, again, looking at the intellectual issue, and if you do have questions, please text those in to Mark. Um, I just got... Hold on a second, I need to check something real quick. Apologize. Make sure that's not my kids in Sunday school. <laughs> okay, it's not. Whew. Not going to have to go save them. All right. Um, so there are, there are two different versions of the problem of suffering. One is at the bottom of your list. And maybe you care about this, maybe you don't. But I just, again, I want us to be well informed, okay? Um, at the bottom of the front page... Here's the logical version of the problem of suffering, the problem of evil. And I've broken it down into five parts. Number one, God exists. Number two, God by definition is both all good and all powerful. You with me so far? So would you agree with that? That a definition for God is that God is all good and God is all powerful. In other words, God does whatever he wants. He's capable of doing whatever he wants. And God is ultimately good. What he wants is for the good. These are two Primary things that we believe about God. You with me? Number three, though, here's where it gets tricky. Evil exists. So we have God over here. We have evil, pain, and suffering over here. 
So therefore, number four, therefore God is either not all-powerful or not all-good. Which leads to the conclusion, if God is, neither, is either not all-powerful or not all-good, then God is not God. God doesn't exist. And this is the decision that a lot of people will make. But what I need you to see is logically this argument is incredibly flawed. It's a flawed argument because the believer only has to add a missing premise that God created the world containing evil and has a good reason for doing so. In other words, what this argument assumes is it assumes that I know better than God what God's will, God's design, God's intentions really are. So it assumes that I have sort of a God's eye perspective on the events happening in my life and in my world. And so most at the apologetic level, when you're dealing with atheists and agnostics at the apologetic level, most people won't make this type of argument because it's a deeply flawed argument. Most instead will make an argument that's on the back side of the page. This is called the evidential version of the problem of suffering. So it goes sort of like this. Not only does suffering exist, really, really, really bad suffering exists. Like an alarming amount of suffering exists. Like some bad things happen and you, ca- you could kind of understand why those bad things happen. Um, you know, somebody tragically dies of an overdose. It's tragic, it's horrible, it's suffering. But that was the decision that they made leading to that consequence. But the innocent child who dies of starvation in Africa, how did that child deserve that level of suffering? And so this, the first argument is trying to argue that God exists simply because suffering exists. And I'm saying that that's a flawed argument from its very get-go. This argument is saying, but look at how much suffering there is. Look at how overwhelming it is. And given the, given the vast evidence of suffering, God probably doesn't exist. Theism is probably false. And so what I've done in your notes is I've given you some responses. Three responses to this particular argument, okay? Number one, we are not in a position to say that it's improbable that God lacks good reasons for permitting the suffering in the world. Now, I know that sounds calloused. I know that sounds harsh. But I I need you to think reasonably about this for a second, okay? Um, There is, uh, some philosophers talk about what they call chaos theory. Have any of you heard of chaos theory? Are you you familiar with that? Some of you are. Um, But chaos theory is this idea that, that everything exists in a hopelessly complex series of cause and effect. Everything in this world is linked to everything else that happens. And so sometimes you hear the statement like a butterfly flaps its wings on one side of the planet and a a tsunami happens on the other side of the planet. Have you heard that type of phrase? That's chaos theory. And what it's saying is a very, very small change to one thing has unimaginable effects on other seemingly unrelated things. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, I want to take this and I want to apply it to suffering. But in order to not sound calloused to to your suffering, I want to apply it to my own suffering, okay? Um, My sister, uh, my older sister, two and a half years older than me, she died in a car accident when I was a junior in high school. Some of you know this story, okay? And um, it was uh, April 30th, 1995. Uh, She was driving her car to church that morning, um, 
and it was it was like a, a mid '80s uh, Ford Mustang, one of those cheap like four cylinder Ford Mustangs. And she was driving it too fast, didn't have her seatbelt on. She was late to church, which was a bad habit of hers anyway. And she took a corner too fast, the car flipped, she was thrown from the car, and she died instantly. And it, it's, it remains the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. It's the worst thing that ever happened, okay? Um, and so I was, having, I was having breakfast a couple years ago. I was having breakfast with a friend of mine named Brandon. Brandon used to go to this church, and uh, he and his family have since moved. Um, but Brand- but the, the, su- the topic of suffering came up in our conversation because uh, Brandon and his wife, they, they have a child who has some, some pretty serious medical issues, and she's always going to have some pretty serious medical issues. And, uh, you know, surgery after surgery, a lot of expense, a lot of heartache, and so we were, we were talking about suffering. And Brandon said something to me that morning that I had never really thought of, thought of before. But it seemed so incredibly wise. Brandon said, if I put a red button on this table in front of you and told you if you press that button, um, your sister never gets in that car accident. If I press this button, my daughter is born healthy, doesn't have any problems at all. Um, So you press this button, the suffering goes away. The pain goes away. He says, would you press that button? Now, think about the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life. I don't know what it is. Everybody has a different story in here. Think about the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And somebody gives you that opportunity. Press the button, it all goes away. How fast would you press that button? Because our knee-jerk reaction is, you couldn't stop me from pressing that button. I would press it so quickly. Like, that's our, that's our first reaction, right? This is something that's bad that's happened to me. Why wouldn't I take steps to remove this bad thing that's happened to me? So we talked about that, and he, and he said, because he spent a lot of time thinking about this, he said, but, but have you really thought about it, though? Have you really thought about the consequences of pressing that button? And so we started to talk about all the things that have happened in my life since my sister's car accident. One thing that's happened in my life was um, a few years later, after my sister's accident, we adopted my little sister, Nerlita, from the Philippines. And I, that might have happened had my sister never had her accident, but I just don't know. It's really questionable whether or not that would have happened. Um, another thing that happened was in 1998, um, partly because of the difficulty of living in that same city, ministering in that same church where this tragedy had happened, partly because of that, my dad entertained a conversation with elders at Christ Church of Orinoco, which eventually led my family to move to Joplin, Missouri and enjoy a 10-year ministry at Christ Church of Orinoco. That never happens, more than likely. That never happens if that accident didn't occur. Um, Another thing that happened for me personally is because of my sister's car accident, um, you know, when, when, you're, when you're 16 years old, which I was at the time, and life gets real, because you know 16-year-olds, 
Like 16-year-olds have this in, invin, invincibility complex, right? Like you're, you're, you're sure that you're going to live forever. You're sure, I mean, even though teenagers can be maddeningly pessimistic at times, they're still hopeless optimists. You know, they still think that everything is going to be just great. Like you're going to get exactly what you want out of life. And if you don't get what you want, you're going to pout about it. You know, I, I was kind of one of those pouting 16-year-olds. Like I knew exactly what I wanted to do, exactly what I wanted to be. I knew I was invincible. I knew nothing bad was ever going to happen. And then boom, something bad happens. And that tragedy actually led me closer to God in faith. It kind of woke me up from my, from my slumber, so to speak, and, and brought me to earth, brought me to reality. And I realized life is short. And if life is short, I, I need to invest my life in things that are going to be eternal, things that are going to last forever. And so those decisions in the wake of my sister's accident eventually led me to being open to the possibility of going to a Christian college. At that point, when the accident happened, it wasn't even on my radar. Um, I was actually, ex- I, w- I was, I had three colleges picked out. None of them were a Bible college. None of them were a Christian college. I respected what my dad did, but I knew enough that I didn't want to do what he did. Um, but because of that accident, I became open to that possibility in a way that I never had been before. And so that, that ended up, uh, I ended up going to a school in central Illinois uh, for four years. Um, and much to my surprise later on, I ended up pursuing ministry as a career, um, which then opened me up to preaching at this lovely little church in central Illinois for five years and meeting just some of the best people ever and getting to invest my life in them and eventually leading me to Ozark Christian College. Um, and a teaching ministry here, which never would have happened. It never would have happened because Mark, Mark is here. I remember having this conversation with Mark. I, I didn't really even know Ozark existed. I knew they existed, but I didn't know anything about the school until my parents actually moved down here. So if the accident doesn't happen, my parents don't move down here. I don't pursue ministry. I don't know anything about Ozark Christian College. I don't get to enjoy the last 10 years serving um, at a great institution like Ozark. Another thing that happened was I went, to, I went to this college in Illinois and met Tara Turner, uh, my freshman year, who hated me, by the way. Um, I, I'm just annoying and pestering enough to, to you know, I, I wouldn't let her get away. Um, so eventually she came around. And, uh, and so we started dating a couple years later, and then we got married. And then we, you know, we've had three kids since then. And, you th- and I, could, I could list like a dozen more important things, but I think you're starting to get the point, right? Are you starting to catch it? So if I press this button on the table in front of me, all of that goes away. My little sister, my career, the people that I've met that have invested in me, that I've been able to invest in through the years for the gospel, that goes away. My wife, my kids potentially go away. All of that goes away if I press that button. And so Brandon looked at me again and he smiled and he's like, do you feel like pressing the button now? I said, no. As shocking as it seems, no. I don't think I pressed that button. And what, here's the reality that that woke me up to. And this is why suffering is a mystery, not a problem. 
I'm so involved in my own suffering or I'm so involved in the suffering that I see around me that I can't possibly see suffering from an objective God's eye point of view. I can't possibly know everything that is in store for me, maybe even because of the suffering that I'm experiencing. So what I'm saying, I'm not trying to say that the suffering that you are encountering is good. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? I'm not saying that the suffering you're encountering is good. What I am saying, however, is that we are not in a position to judge every bit of pain and suffering that exists in this world as a universal bad. We're not in that God's eye perspective to make that judgment. I think that that's really important to know. I think that's really important to recognize. Another thing, number two, is that relative to the full scope of the evidence, God's existence is still probable. And this is the, this is the Henri apologist coming out in me because I still want to tell people, listen, uh, I understand the, the suffering that you're going through is horrible. I, I, I sympathize with that. I understand that. But you still have to deal with the vast amount of evidence that exists, the good, reasonable evidence that exists for the existence of God. The suffering that you're experiencing in your life does not cancel out all of the other good arguments that could be made for the existence of God in this world and in your life. One of the things that we're going to talk about next week is the resurrection. And the reason why the resurrection is so central to me is if we can talk intelligently about the resurrection, if we could give good reasons to believe in the resurrection, then a lot of these other questions start to take care of themselves. And I can ground myself, even in the midst of of pain, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of evil, I can ground myself in the knowledge of God. I can ground myself in that. Um, which is one of the reasons why, guys, listen, series like this are so important because we have to learn about our faith, right? We, we, have, to, we have to take every thought captive because Life will throw a lot of curveballs at us. Life will cause us to suffer in any number of different ways. And if we don't have a solid grounding in our faith, if we don't know what we believe and why we believe it, then, you know, the, the metaphor that Paul uses is that we're going to be storm-tossed. We're going to be tossed back and forth. We need to be grounded in what we believe. Number, thing, or number three thing. Christianity entails doctrines that increase the prob- probability of the coexistence of God and suffering, which... Um, is a fancy way of saying um, our faith uh, uniquely answers the dilemma of pain and suffering. And it's really important that we recognize this. Uh, I've given you a few subpoints here. <coughs> Excuse me. The, center, or the chief purpose of life is not happiness, but the knowledge of God. It's funny, the, the people that answer this little survey for my students... They have to answer two, two primary questions, and then there's several secondary questions that they have to answer. But the two primary questions is, why don't you believe in God? But then the second question is, what is your purpose for life? What is the ultimate meaning for life? And it's fascinating, of the people who say, I don't believe in God because pain and suffering exists, the way they answer the first question, most of them, many of them will answer the second question in this way. What is the chief purpose of life? To be happy. To be satisfied to have what I want, 
to be taken care of, to be content. Which I think is a, you know, we're talking about corrective lenses. I think that that is a very Western worldview. That's a very Western way of understanding our purpose for life, but that's certainly not God's understanding of the purpose of life. Look all you want through the pages of scripture. You will never find this, I guarantee you. You will never find God saying something to the effect of, I want you to be happy, healthy, and wise. That's my number one goal for you in your life. Now, does God want good for us? Absolutely, he wants good for us. But you'll never find Jesus in scripture saying, but are you happy? Just please give me a smile, you know? You never find Jesus saying that. You never find Paul saying that. Now, they talk a lot about joy, but you never hear Paul writing from prison, by the way, still licking his wounds from getting beaten. You never hear Paul saying, but are you happy? Like, that's not a biblical worldview, but it is a very American worldview. Because I, I kind of think a lot of myself, right? I think a lot of myself. And why wouldn't God think a lot of me? Because I think a lot of me. I think a whole lot of me. And so if I think a lot of myself, and I live in this consumeristic culture that tells me I can get what I want if I just work hard enough, then why wouldn't God also want to give me what I want? God's out for my best interest, right? And so we have this mistaken worldview that says God's ultimate purpose for our life is happiness, but it's not. God's ultimate purpose for our life is that we would know him and glorify him. And those are two very different things. And sometimes, oftentimes, the pathway to the knowledge of God is directly through the neighborhood of suffering. The road to the knowledge of God takes us through the neighborhood of sufferings. And you know how I know this? You know how I know that the ultimate purpose for life is not happiness, but the knowledge of God? Because we have so much stuff, but we're still not happy. Okay? We have so much stuff in our culture, and we're still not happy. This is a self-defeating philosophy. It's an empty philosophy, but we try to fool ourselves with it every day, that if I just get more stuff, then I'll be happy but I look at other people around the world that don't have a fraction of the things that I have. But they still manage to be pretty joy-filled people. Which tells me that we're kind of living a lie. We're deceiving ourselves that the number one purpose for our lives can be happy, is that we're happy. Uh, Another point, letter B. Mankind is in a state of rebellion against God and against his purpose. Sin. Why does pain and suffering exist? One answer to this would be sinfulness, brokenness, rebellion. So the Christian worldview says, yes, pain and suffering, is, it's a reality. Evil is a reality. But the source of this really traces itself back, not to God, but it traces itself back to me, to my brokenness. Letter C. God's purpose is not restricted to this life, but spills over beyond the grave into eternal life. God's purpose is not just about this life. It's not restricted to this life. Do we believe in glory? Do we believe in heaven? Do we believe in God's justice? I hope the answer to all those things is yes. But we need to understand that those promises of God 
are not simply promises for your best life now. They're not just promises for the here and now. God has something far greater in store for us than just the piddly things that we satisfy ourselves with. Okay, next point. Letter D. The knowledge of God is an... I I put this word in here because I didn't want to spell it out for you. It's an incommensurable good. I figured you could spell good. Um, In other words, there's nothing that compares to the knowledge of God. No amount of suffering that that I might encounter in my life, no amount of suffering that we might encounter in our world can surpass the knowledge of God. To be known by God and to know God as our Savior. Um, That's just the biblical worldview. And then letter E, and this is critical, the central doctrine of Christianity is not the avoidance of suffering as in other faiths, but the utter defeat of suffering through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. We experience suffering as an ever-present reality in our world. God knows that and has addressed that in the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel message is about the problem of pain and suffering and evil. So far from being um, an unsolvable problem for us, the, the problem of pain, suffering, and evil points us ever closer to Jesus Christ. Jesus came to fix what's jacked up and wrong with this world. That's why he's at the very center of everything that we say, do, and think, because he makes all the difference. Okay, um, a few more things, and then I want to spend the last 15 minutes or so <coughs> answering uh, questions that might come up. So again, I said it before, I'll say it again. If you do have questions, please uh, text those in. Um, this next little part, I, I, I ran this by a few, few students this week to see if I was just crazy or if this made sense, and they told me, well, yes, you're crazy, but you should say it anyway. Um, here's, here's the thing that I, I've been trying to figure out for a while. Um, people who say, because pain and suffering exists, I can't believe in God. So I can't, I, I don't believe in God anymore because pain and suffering exists. There, there's something very, very flawed about that type of argument. Now, now, many people who say these things, really, it's not that they've stopped believing in God. Like, do you know people in your life who, who have said things like this, that I don't believe in God because look at all the pain and suffering that exists in the world? Many people that say these things, I've come to believe it's sort of like my eight-year-old daughter. Now, this, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to be flippant about this, okay? Um, I'm not trying to make fun. But it's sort of like my eight-year-old daughter, when she gets mad at me, um, she'll run into her, her, into her room and slam the door. And, and that, that's her way of protesting. That's her way of, of basically saying, Daddy, you're a bully. Um, she'll run into her room and close the door. And I think a lot of people, when they reject God because of pain and suffering, I'm not, e- I'm not even sure that they've made this intellectual decision. Like, oh, I guess God doesn't exist. I think for a lot of people, it's basically like, God, you've hurt me. I don't understand what's going on. I don't get it. I'm confused. And so I'm just going to slam the door for a while. And I think with so many people in our lives, we just need to be patient. We really need to be patient. We need to continue to love them. Just like with that, with, with that child who slammed the door, continue to love them, continue to reach out to them, and, and, and just pray for them that, that there will come this point where they will thaw 
towards God again. Um, so I, I wrote this down this week. I'm not sure if it makes sense, but we'll see. We'll see if it makes sense. Um, this is the way I think. So this will make sense to some of you. Some of you are like, that guy's crazy. Um, so here's the dilemma on the left-hand side. The dilemma is I believe in God, okay? I experience suffering. Suffering in God cannot coexist, number three. By which I mean that God could not exist and allow so much suffering to exist in the world. Are you with me so far? That's my dilemma. So, therefore, I no longer believe in God since suffering is a part of my immediate experience. I abandon the belief in God as simply wishful and imaginary thinking. So I have these dilemmas. I believe in God, I believe in suffering, or I experience suffering. Those two things can't coexist. I can't really reject suffering because, ouch, I hurt. I can't deny that I hurt. So I guess I'll just deny God. God's just wishful thinking, whatever. Just for, you know, it's just fantasy. But that doesn't remove the problem. Now I have a new dilemma, and that's on the right-hand side. I now believe in the universe. Here's what that means. When you stop believing in God, you, you've got to believe in something. And so if there's no God, all I'm left with is what? This, the universe, the world. That's all I'm left with. Now, I have to believe in that, otherwise I'm crazy. Now, I could say that, you know, I'm, maybe I'm plugged into the matrix somewhere or something like that, but, but that just kind of sounds a little cuckoo. So I believe in the universe, but notice, number two, I still experience suffering. Suffering hasn't gone away because I've stopped believing in God. It hasn't stopped. My parents are still getting divorced. My wife is still dying of cancer. Kids are still dying, or dying of starvation in Africa. The suffering hasn't gone away, even though I've chosen to stop believing in God. So, number three, suffering and the universe cannot coexist. You say, well, how does that work? Let me explain it. In a universe governed by natural law events, uh, or governed by certain natural laws, events like tornadoes can and cancer are bound to occur. But the universe is uncaring and amoral. In other words, the universe don't care about you. The world doesn't care about you. There's no personality to the universe. It just simply exists. Um, but the universe is uncaring and amoral. Bad things in such a universe cannot rightly be called bad. They are simply unfortunate from your perspective, but not in a universally binding sense, natural events. Suffering as a moral category cannot exist in an uncaring universe. Now I know that, that maybe I need to explain that further, okay? So um, you get cancer. This is unfortunate, okay? But it's not bad. Because in a universe without God, there is no such thing as bad. It's simply stuff that happens. Starvation is simply something that happens. Death is just something that happens. You no longer have the right to call it bad. So that's a dilemma, right? I can't believe in badness and in the universe at the same time. Therefore, I can no longer believe in suffering. I cannot deny the existence of the universe and maintain my sanity, uh, although various Eastern worldviews have attempted the trick. Since I cannot deny the universe and I cannot deny suffering, or I cannot imagine suffering in the universe coexisting, I must conclude that there is no such thing as suffering. That is a weird dilemma to find yourself in, okay? 
And what I'm trying to say, and this is a long way around of saying it, choosing to disbelieve in God because of suffering makes no coherent sense. It doesn't make suffering go away. It just makes it worse. And that's why I say most people who say this, these sorts of things, really it's an emotional issue as much as anything else, which is why we need to turn the page. Some last things, quickly. Top of the page, there are three prominent theodicies. Theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-I-E-S. Theodicies. Maybe you've heard that word before, maybe you haven't. But this is just an answer to the problem of evil that attempts to justify the ways of God to man. In other words, how do we justify the existence of God and the existence of suffering at the same time? Okay? And there's three prominent ones that I want to highlight, and I'm going to go through this really quickly. The first one is called the free will theodicy. The free will theodicy. That evil is the result of man's free will choice against the good. So in other words, why do bad things happen? Because God decided in his sovereignty to give us the ability to choose against him. That God gave us the ability to rebel. God gave us free will, and our free will led to brokenness, not just in our lives, but brokenness in the entire world. Okay? Number two, here's another um, theodicy. Is, it's called the natural law theology, theodicy. Natural law. Which basically says much more evil is the consequence of evil decisions than we are prone to admit. Um, here, here's what that basically means. Um, you know, the child that dies of starvation in Africa, it's horrible. It's tragic. And you can say, well, that's naturalistic. It's just natural that, that famines happen or starvation happens. But is it really? Or are some of the famines and some of the catastrophes that happen um, in other places around the globe are those ultimately the consequence of various sinful decisions made by individuals or made by governments? What this, what this argument is saying is when you peer deeply into various sufferings that exist, at their root, at their core, you'll often find, oftentimes find the decisions of individuals or the decisions of groups of individuals. Um, or take, you know, um, take something like, uh, you know, cancer that happens to us. You know, there are various things that we know might lead to the inevitability of getting sick, the inevitability of, of cancer. And so we make certain decisions that open us up to that possibility. Or you think of something even like, um, you know, a tornado, a horrible tornado that happens. Well, a tornado is a natural event. It's a natural weather event. Um, but when you, when you build homes in a certain area, you put yourself in a certain amount of natural risk to do that. And so is that evil or is that just a natural consequence of living in a world governed by natural law? Is this making sense? So it's not, it's not my favorite theodicy of the three, but it's an argument that some people often make that if you actually peer deeply into the suffering that exists in our world, a lot of it comes back to human choice, the choices that we make. Some of those choices are good. Some of those choices are evil. Some of those choices are just whatever. Uh, number three, last one, is called the soul-making theodicy. This is my favorite one. Soul-making. It basically says, we ask all of the wrong questions when suffering happens. When there's a car accident, you've been in a car accident? 
What's one of the very first questions that you ask after, is everyone okay? What's one of the very first questions that you ask? Or maybe your insurance company asks. Who's at fault? Like we ask the who question immediately, right? This is natural for us. We want to assign blame. We want to assign fault. And so when something bad happens to us in our lives, our natural human reaction is to, to engage in this sort of whodunit. Who's responsible? When my sister had this car accident, this is exactly what happened with godly and with not so godly people in my life. Some people said, well, this was God's will. So I'm like, so you're saying that God made my sister swerve and, and die in this car accident? Well, that's not. How do you know that, first of all? Like, did God tell you that? Did God whisper that in your, how do you know? Like, that seems really arrogant to say God caused this. Are you God's spokesperson? And then other people came along and said, oh, this Satan did it. Satan did it. Okay, so Satan caused my car, my sister's car accident. How do you know that? Like, that's, that's a really alarming position to find yourself in, to have the two most powerful figures in the entire universe out to get you. <laughs> so maybe God did it, maybe Satan did it. Um, the police officer said, you know, um, actually the reason why it happened was she was driving too fast and the road was slick. It had rained that morning. So they're basically saying it was a naturalistic reason. It just kind of happened. Who done it? You know what? I still don't know the answer. I don't. And I've stopped trying to find the answer. Because it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The wrong question for us to ask is who. And it's wrong because I'm not sure we ever will know the answer this side of heaven. And I'm not sure that we're designed for that answer. The right question to ask eventually is what now? What now? What will this event lead to in my life? Because I believe that God is capable of redeeming anything and everything. We may not see it immediately. We may not see it ever in our life. Just read Hebrews chapter 11. We, not, we might not experience that level of redemption ever in our life, but we trust and we hope. And we believe in a God of promise, even when what's immediately before us seems to be challenging that promise. We trust. We trust that God will use this situation for my good, Romans chapter 8, to conform me to the likeness of Christ. Now notice, Paul doesn't say in Romans chapter 8, he doesn't say, God's going to turn everything into daisies for you. It's all going to be sunshine and lollipops. God's going to make everything all right in the end. It's, it's going to be a happily ever after. Don't you worry about it. It's not what Paul says at all. Paul says, God works all things for good, for the good of those who love him, those who have been, Romans 8, 29, those who have, been, uh, who have been predestined to be conformed to his likeness. In other words, God's desire for your life is that you look more like Christ. And a lot of times, it's exactly the suffering that we go through that leads us in that direction. That's a soul-making theodicy. All right, got four minutes left before I want to open it up to some questions. This leaves us a little bit of time for the emotional problem of suffering. Now, my friend Peter Buckland is not here tonight. You could tell just by listening to me, I'm, I'm like the, I'm, I'm the philosopher type. I'm the intellectual type. I like to approach issues like this from that sort of perspective. If Peter were here, he would kind of be pulling on my shirt a little bit, telling Chad, just chill out, just calm down. 
because there's a whole other set of issues here that really needs to be addressed. And that's the emotional problem of suffering. And I have just four points here um, just for you to ponder, just to think about. Number one, we must consider how the cross uniquely addresses the mystery of suffering and evil. Uh, Alistair McGrath, who's a, a British author who I really like, he says, to discuss suffering without reference to the suffering of Christ is a theological and spiritual absurdity. And what he's saying there is that we shouldn't talk about suffering as Christians without acknowledging the critical fact that our God has suffered himself on our behalf. And to me, that makes a world of difference, yes? The, the, the text that I put down here is Job chapter 9, and it's probably not a text that many of you are familiar with, so let me read it. Um, Job 9, starting at verse 32. <clears throat> you know the story of Job, though, right? Have you heard the story of Job? Um, probably the most ancient story in the Bible is the story of Job, which I always find kind of fascinating because the, the most ancient story in the Bible is also a story about suffering, which just tells you how universal this issue is. And so Job 9, 32 and following, this is Job, <clears throat> this is Job basically, um, I wouldn't say whining, but he, he's issuing his complaint to God. He's, he's issuing his complaint. And here's what he says. It's really a complaint about God, not, not a complaint to God. He says, he, or God, is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, someone to lay his hand upon us both. So in other words, here's Job's complaint. God doesn't understand. God's way up there. I'm way down here. God doesn't understand my predicament. I can't even bring my complaint against God because God is so distant from me. He just doesn't care. I wish there was someone to stand between us. Verse 34, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. I preached a sermon on this text a couple years ago around Christmas time at Ozark. And the title of the sermon was Christmas at Job's House. A lot of you who are going through pain and suffering or, or you've gone through it in the past, you know that the holidays are rough, uh, especially Christmas, when, when there's that, that unspoken sorrow in the room, the unspoken absence in the room. It's tough. It's hard. So I started to think about what would the holidays at Job's house look like? Oh, my word. But you have him here calling out for a mediator, for someone to stand in between himself and God. And you know what I realized? The prayer of Job is answered in the person of Jesus. Which is why I titled the sermon, Christmas at Job's House. Because that first Christmas morning was what Job and really all of mankind have always been longing for. They've been longing for a God who understands them and a God who has sacrificed himself for them. Someone to stand between. That's Jesus. Number two, we must measure our expectations in light of the promises of God. 
Some religions measure themselves by the degree of bliss they evoke in adherence, the number of souls they attract, the magnitude of their holy buildings. Christianity measures itself by the weight of crosses it bears, it bears in the name of its crucified God. Again, the promise in the New Testament is take up your cross daily and follow me. The promise of the New Testament is he who wants to be first must be last and a servant of all. That's what Christ calls us to. We shouldn't fool ourselves with this sort of expectation that God wants me above all things to be happy in my life. It's not what Christ calls us to. Number three, and I've already talked about this, asking why is natural, but it may also be a form of denial. Confessing that we don't know the source of evil may be okay. Scripture seems to allow for some agnosticism here. In other words, we don't always know who or the why. The question that Scripture seems to ask is what's next? And then lastly, number four, helping the hurting. Uh, And I end with this because this is a, a really critical point. The victim of evil is typically not a philosopher. Rather, the victim is rendered incapable of thought. Weeping, screaming, withdrawing in a numb silence, or crouching like a wounded animal in fear. And this is an important thing for me to remember. People struggling through issues of pain and suffering, they're not philosophers. They're feeling something very raw. They're feeling something that's ripping them in two. And I think that just if I could get pastoral for a second, and, and this is where I have to learn how to bite my tongue in certain conversations. Um, I think it's more important a lot of times for me just to be silent. For me just to weep alongside of those who are hurting. Rather than being defensive and trying to answer all of those questions immediately. Now that's hard for me because I teach apologetics. I teach a class on Christian defenses. A part of me is just hardwired to be defensive, okay? But when people are suffering, I think it's more important that we're silent, that we're present, than that we're defensive. There will come a time and a place to answer some of the deep intellectual questions. But that time and the place is, is rarely ever in the midst of suffering. I remember when my sister died, just the awful and ignorant and a lot of times good intentioned, but, but ultimately hurtful things that people said in the midst of that. But you know what I remember more than anything else is I remember the people who were present, the people who didn't say anything. They were just there. And I, 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 I did a funeral one time. One of the hardest funerals I've ever done uh, was for a woman who died far too young. Um, and she died of cancer. And uh, every once in a while as a preacher, you get the opportunity to plan a person's funeral with them, which is a sacred blessing to be able to do. And I remember sitting in her hospital room and, and actually just telling her, her, her name was Melody. I said, Melody, what, what do I say? I was a young kid. I was 22 years old. Like, Melody, what do I say? You got to help me. What, what do you want me to tell your friends? What do you want me to tell my family? or your family. And she said, she already knew. She said, I want you to preach from John chapter 11. I want the title for your funeral sermon to be the God of the interrupted funeral. Like, oh, that's good. John chapter 11, if you didn't know, John chapter 11 is a story of Jesus going to a funeral. He's going to a funeral of a good friend named Lazarus. 
And what, what's, what's remarkable about this is it's, it's the only time that Scripture recounts Jesus crying. Jesus wept at this funeral. And he tells Mary and Martha, the two sisters, he tells them, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he demonstrates it by interrupting the funeral and raising Lazarus back from the dead. And she said, that's the sermon that I want you to preach at my funeral. I want you to remind my friends, I want you to remind my family that the God that I love is a God of the interrupted funeral. He may not interrupt my funeral today, but he's going to interrupt my funeral at some point. And that's the hope that I have. Um, what question, are there any questions that came in, Mark? I think uh, you crossed these several times, but I'm going to give them to you in sound bites. I figure if you took four minutes to handle mm -hmm. the emotional part of this, we can do this, right? Yeah, yeah, right. That made me laugh. Uh, how would you address the question of what did I do wrong to deserve this? Back to that pastoral moment when yeah. we have to answer their questions. <clears throat> This is a common one. It's come in several ways, but this is well-versed. What did I do wrong to deserve this? Well, I understand. I, <laughs> this, is, this is a very natural reaction when, when suffering happens. Because one of the things that I didn't talk about when, when we're gauging fault, God did it, Satan did it, it's just something natural that happens in the world. Another answer to that question is, maybe this is my deal. Maybe this is my fault. Maybe it's because of something wrong that I did. And, and many people in Jesus' own world, the world that Jesus lived in, had precisely this understanding of pain and suffering and evil. Um, there, there was a, a, a man who was born blind, and Jesus is asked, who caused this? Who, who's, who's the, who sinned? Why is this guy blind? Who sinned? And Jesus said, He's blind so that the, I'm paraphrasing Mark, forgive me, um, so that the glory of God may be seen in him. And Jesus heals him of his blindness. And I think pastorally, I would, I would caution you away from that question, what did I do to deserve this or what did I do to be punished for this? I think that we need to recognize that we worship a God who loves us that we worship a God of grace, forgiveness, and peace. And again, I would lead you to a more productive question, what next? I, I know it's hard because a lot of us, we have a hard time. I, I, I remember in my sister's accident, I, I remember just going to my parents in tears uh, several weeks after the fact, saying to them, I woke, her, I, I woke her up in her room, and I specifically said, get up, you don't want to be late for church. That was the last thing that I said to my sister. And I, I racked myself with guilt over that, saying, well, why didn't I just stand there and make sure that she got up out of bed so she didn't have to drive fast to church? And so I lived with that guilt for a really long time. And, and eventually I just had to come to the understanding, it's not on me. This isn't, this isn't my fault. This isn't something that I caused or could have prevented. This isn't, that's not a productive question for me to constantly be asking myself because it, it restricts me from really growing in this, in this season. It keeps me locked into that moment so that I can't really move beyond it. And you could probably answer the question better than I can, but that's, that's 
That's what I would yeah. say. I think that probably one of the parts of the, the story of Job that amazes me, if, and I don't use that word lightly in this case, whenever I have to read through Job, and I'll be honest with you, I have to force myself to read the, the chapter after chapter where he's asking big questions and he's being asked big questions and God doesn't answer his question. It's so frustrating to read. But I'm always amazed by Job's willingness to say to those accusing him of being in the wrong, I'm innocent. He knew his relationship mm -hmm. with God was not based on how good he was. So he, he answered with that a protest and said, no, I, I don't have hidden sin. I bring that before the yeah. Lord. That's refreshing. But some, some people live their whole lives with this understanding of God that God is just waiting for the opportunity to get me. <laughs> yeah. He's just waiting for that moment to strike me down or to strike down somebody that I love. They, they just live with that really cartoonish picture of God, but that's not the God who we love and the God who we worship. Um, and so we need to get rid of that mindset. Uh, you addressed this, but I, I kind of want to go to the other side of it. When people are looking for blame, uh, one of the, uh, if I may, annoying things that Christians say in these moments mm -hmm. is a dismissive, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Uh, how can we get rid of that out of our vernacular? Just, just avoid cliches. So, cli we, we like to fill up the silence with cliches, and people, people don't want to hear a cliche when they're in the midst of something that's very real, because there's something very fake about a cliche, right? And so your cliche is an offense to something that I'm feeling on a very real level. And so I understand the sentiment. The sentiment is, you know, God can redeem this, be faithful to the God of promise, but it just sounds so hollow and so empty and to say everything happens for a reason basically is to say to someone, it's okay that your sister died. Everything happens for a reason. You know, I, even though I wouldn't press that red button, my sister dying is still the most awful thing that's ever happened to me in my life. It's still not a good thing. It's still something that I hate. But when we say a Christian cliche like that, like everything happens for a reason, it's almost like you're just casting that suffering aside and not really willing to deal with it. And it's, it's also flawed in that you're assuming that with the information we have in front of us, we'll be able to conclude what that reason was. Yeah, exactly. Which is just dangerous because it always attributes toward God something, well, not always, but nothing always, but it's a cliche. It attributes toward God something that you don't know. Yeah. And this last question, when I first got it, I thought, well, it's parallel, but now I'm actually beginning to see there's some truth to this. At creation, did God know when he, and I don't mean truth by the question, but mm -hmm. how it fits tonight. At creation, did God know when he gave us free will that we would choose to rebel? Uh -huh. And was redemption already in the works, or was it an afterthought? Gosh. And the reason I like this question is it really brings us back to the gospel yeah. hope even in suffering. That is <laughs> such a good question. You don't know how good of a question that is. Um, you know, one of the, we, we think of the grace of God being, being something that is primarily centered on Christ. So when we think of God's grace, we think of Christ. We think of Jesus going to the cross on our behalf, forgiving us of our sins. All of that is true. But what, and I try to emphasize this with my students, what we sometimes forget is that the grace of God is also involved in creation itself. Because, now I need, to think, I need you to think of it this way. 
Any of you artists in this room? You're an artist, or you pretend to be an artist? Okay, you think, you think about what an artist does. An artist takes something that is a part of themselves. Maybe it's a feeling, maybe it's a thought, just an idea. You take something that's a part of yourself and you externalize it. You put it on canvas, you sculpt it into a, a, a figure, you, you put it outside of yourself. That's, that's the creative process. But there's also something sacrificial about the creative process too. You're giving up a, a part of yourself to the world. And so you paint this painting, and even though you know what the painting is and what the painting represents, people may choose to dismiss that or to see it in a different way or to understand it in a different way. So you've relinquished control of something that was intimate to you. Are you with me on that thought? Now, think about the sovereign God of the universe. Or actually just the sovereign God. The universe didn't exist yet. Just think about God deciding, I'm going to create the universe. I'm going to take something and speak it into being. Something that exists from me, but it isn't me. It's separate from me. And then I'm also going to create these beings, these biological beings, unique in my image. I'm going to form them, shape them in my image. Do you realize how big of a sacrificial act that was of God just to bring the universe into existence and to bring us into existence in his image? This was a, an amazing act of sacrifice, the act of creation. And I've got to believe, and, and philosophers and theologians differ on this, but I've got to believe that God did this in full knowledge that rebellion was likely, that brokenness was likely. But he chose to do it anyway, which is all the more amazing that he created the world knowing that the world would ultimately require his sacrifice to save. It's amazing to think about. You guys appreciate Chad like I do? Now, that's not fair. You don't know how much I appreciate him, so that's an unfair question. Hey, a uh, couple of things. Uh, Chad already foreshadowed next uh, uh, Wednesday. Good news is, is my friend here just may have committed himself to extending this Wednesday night a couple more weeks. And so we're going to give you information on that. So, you know, we talked about it being coinciding with Sunday mornings only, but there's a couple of topics that we may uh, venture into, and we're going to let you know more about that. So don't, don't book your Wednesday nights if you haven't done that already. Uh, second thing is we're going to talk about a real exciting topic Sunday morning. We're going to talk about death. If you can see the string we're pulling from the beginning of this series all the way through to the end, suffering leads some to death, but life leads all of us to death because of our sin. We're going to talk about the worldview on death as a believer. And what does Paul tell us about that? And then next Wednesday night, Michael and Chad are going to lead us in a discussion on the impact of the resurrection, some of the evidences of it, and uh, ultimately what the resurrection has to mean to us. Because I think Chad understated it in an attempt to, to make it impactful. The resurrection is the validity behind our worldview. I mean, I, I know he believes that. I believe we spent this summer together at, at MOVE talking about this concept with high school kids. The resurrection changes everything. And so we're going to encourage you to, to be back Sunday morning, Wednesday night. Uh, come be a part of this. Good news is uh, Royals are tied 1-1. You guys are dismissed. Have a great night.
Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.